0: Well, this morning, what we really want to glean from this text, I believe that it's a responsible thing to do, to do one's best to boil the text down to one sentence if possible in a way that's palatable for the listener. And so this is my effort here. Because he bore our sins, we will live to his righteousness. Because he bore our sins, we will live to his righteousness. Now that violates the easy believism of the day that says, just trust Christ, just ask him into your heart, just make a decision for him. And that lordship thing, if you want to give that a go later, then that's okay. Now, lots of churches are not saying it that boldly, but in the 80s and early 90s, that really was the message. It was the lordship salvation debate. And many people were saying, no, no, no. You can take him as savior, and if you want him as lord, you have that option later. That is as bold as they would say it. And you know that's a lie. You know that's not biblical Christianity. If God saves someone, he saves him unto righteousness he sets him apart unto holiness thus you have the command in the book that we're studying be holy for i am holy let god's holiness be the standard by which you would pursue holiness yourself in other words pursue his holiness not the achievement of your own so the call upon our lives is one to reflect the person of christ and suffering ought to bring that out in us If we suffer just like the world, then we have no message, really. We don't have any impact on the world. But if we suffer like Christ, think of it. If you've got no suffering, if you don't have that privilege, the blessing of suffering, you can't suffer like Christ. If you don't suffer, you can't suffer like he suffered. But you're called to walk in his steps in that suffering. Why? Because that exemplifies what he did it exemplifies the reality that he bore our sins. And the result would be the certain reality that we would live unto his righteousness. Well, point number one in an effort to understand and live by this principle, the principle that he bore our sins, and so we will live to his righteousness. Point number one, his substitution for your death. I want you this morning to see His substitution for your death. You know that Paul the Apostle has said as plainly as can be, the wages of sin is death. Who has sinned? Everyone has sinned. The only non-sinner is Jesus Christ. This levels the playing field. The doctrine of depravity levels the playing field. Everyone is born into total sinfulness total wickedness not a glimmer of hope not a ray of goodness but complete and utter depravity wickedness we are dead in our trespasses and sins and the warning of the bible is if you die in your sins you go to that punishment that all men deserve But he died a substitutionary death, a penal death, a literal death that was, in fact, substitutionary. Now, who can do that? Who can substitute for someone else? Well, the generic answer is someone who's qualified. But in this case, what is the qualification? Well, you deserve to die for your sins. I deserve to die for my sins. So I can't die a substitutionary death for me or for you, nor can you for me or for anyone else. The only one who can die a substitutionary death is the one who doesn't deserve that death. Peter says it this way in our text this morning. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. This double pronoun, he himself personalizes This truth. He himself. Peter could have said, He bore our sins, but he pointed at Christ in a sense twice. He himself. In other words, it was volitional. He chose. He willingly. He lovingly. He selflessly. He himself bore our sins. And sins here is significant. You know what a sin is? Peter doesn't just say sins, and he doesn't just say your sins. He says our sins. And so again, he personalizes this, not so that the reader or the listener would think that they are the only ones being addressed here, but that Peter himself would include himself. He bore our sins. I, as a, as a pastor, as a brother in Christ, as a teacher, would say he bore our sins. That's how we ought to think of this. This term sins here is a term that means to miss the mark. If you've practiced archery, you've missed the mark more than you've made the mark, especially in the early days of learning how to do that. So you understand what that is. You're trying to hit the mark. Hebert says, this portrays a falling short of the target, missing the mark, and thus characterizes sin as a falling short of God's standard and purpose for our lives. But in the New Testament, the concept is not merely negative, It also involves a positive element of willful disobedience to the known will of God. So although missing the mark can involve an effort to hit the mark, but missing it, it also involves a willingness to miss the mark. It is a willful intent to abandon what we know to be true of God. What can you know is the will of God? It is the moral commands of the Scripture the precepts of the Bible, what God has commanded for mankind. That's what you can know is the will of God, the revealed will of God. And so in any given moment where we defy that, no matter what the practice is, be it a matter of conduct, how we act, how we speak, how we talk to someone, where we go, what we do, or the thoughts of our hearts, we violate the the command to not be deceptive, Or to not be bitter, to not be angry, to not be jealous, to not slander. You know, those are things that take place in the heart that manifest themselves in speech and in conduct. How about where our eyes go? The things we look at, the things that we allow into our hearts through our eyes and the things that we allow our eyes to look at longer than what's necessary. You say, how could any of it be necessary? Well, you might accidentally see something from time to time you shouldn't. How long do, do your eyes linger really is the question. And so the willingness to sin in whatever way That's what Peter is addressing here. It's a very generic matter. No matter what the sin is, it's included in this. And Peter tells us he bore them. He himself bore our sins. What does that mean? How can he bear our sins? He didn't commit my sins. It's not like they're in a bucket and I hand them to him and now he carries them. But it is something similar to that in a sense. The idea of bearing sins. Is to carry up in Isaiah 53 verse 4 Isaiah says it this way surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried you know this from Galatians 6 in verse 1 that command to bear one another's burdens what are those burdens it's sin In Galatians 6, it's the burden of sin. You need someone to bear the burden of your sin. You need someone to ultimately bear the massive amount of your sin, and that's Christ. The church then is called to help people who are under the burden of sin to bear that with them through it. But what Christ did was exclusive, it was unique. You can't bear anyone's sins the way Christ bore your sins. This is an aorist active indicative. And if you've been listening through this study, you know that the the aorist tense means that it happened at one time. It's a really important lingual matter. Don't dismiss the the importance of this. When the aorist tense is used, it means it was a one-time deal. So when Christ bore our sins, the matter is he did it once. And as I've pointed out along the way, the Roman Catholic organization wants you to believe that Christ continues to bear your sins. Therefore, they wear the crucifix. They keep him on the cross. That's the symbolism of that. That's the the doctrine behind it. Why is that? That's so I can continue to sin. I can do what I want on Saturday night. I can go to confessional on Sunday morning and make it right. Why? Because he dies again. The reality is, if Christ bore your sins, he bore all your sins one time. There was no need for him to continue to bear them. It's a one-time event. The writer of Hebrews helps us with this in Hebrews 7, verse 26, where he says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy and innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices. In the Old Testament system, and this is where the Catholic organization really gets it, in the Old Testament system there was a need for daily offering up for atonement. And all that was a foreshadowing of what would come in Christ's bearing of sins. So that needed to happen, that bearing of sins, that sacrifice of sins was a foreshadowing that needed to take place on a regular basis. Why? So that the people would have that picture in their mind. That was it. We look back on that with the Lord's table, so we do it on a regular basis. We engage in the Lord's table on a monthly basis. We're commanded to remember Him with the Lord's table, so we do that faithfully and regularly. Hebrews 7, verse 27 goes on to say, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all. You get the flow here? He's talking about timing. He's not talking about how many people he did it for. It's the timing, once for all. It doesn't need to be done what? Daily. It's once for all. When he offered up himself, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever perfect in obedience perfect in his trust in his father perfect in his conduct perfect in every way spiritually in 2nd Corinthians 5 verse 21 though we're told he made him God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And again, how does a person bear one's sins? How does he become another person's sins? But that's really the issue. It is as if he committed the sins. I did not say that Christ committed sin. Christ did not commit sin. But in the moment that he bore the sins of sinners, it was as if he had committed the sin. He took the sin on as if he committed it. Why? Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I I quoted Romans 1.18 when I prayed earlier that the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And so there is need for expiation. There is need for salvation from one's sins. There is need to be saved from that unrighteousness. Where does that come from? Does it come from something you would do Does it come from your ability to please the Lord? It comes from belief and belief alone in the Lord and his expiatory work, his God-satisfying, wrath-absorbing work on the cross, that he took on the sins himself. And so in the moment that he took on the sin, he took on the guilt. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, "...because he poured out himself to death." and was numbered with the transgressors yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors he bore the sin of many and yes there is a very distinct and important reason why he doesn't say all because it was for many he chose the word many because it was many we don't know how many but we know it was many So we trust that the Lord will bring those for whom he died to the place of trusting in him. and That they would trust in the work that he accomplished on the cross by bearing their sins. By bearing the brunt of God's wrath for taking on their sins. Peter then says that it's in his body. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Some translations read, and I think probably a little more literally, on the tree. If you want to get real literal, it's on the wood. And this, I believe, is an allusion to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, where we read, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. But you shall surely bury him on the same day; for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And so hanging was hanging on a tree was exclusively set apart for those who had committed sins that they couldn't expiate themselves, they couldn't redeem themselves from that sin. If you look at the law through Leviticus, there were sins that could be paid for by money or by even giving one's life up as a slave. but those sins for which a man could not pay, he had to be executed. He was cursed. He was cursed with death. And so whether your translation says on a cross or on a tree, there seems to be an allusion here to the fact that in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a very clear prescription for those who have committed sins for which they themselves could not return payment. So they were executed. Bearing the sins of man meant bearing his punishment. When Christ bore the sins of mankind, he took the punishment that came along with that. To take on the crimes of the convicted criminal is to take on the curse that rightfully accompanies the crimes. The result was that he bore the judgment. To bear the judgment was to receive the full wrath of the judge. And thus, as you know, Jesus' words in Matthew 27, verse 46, Matthew says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've read some troubling articles in the last few days that want the reader to believe that this is a misunderstanding of what took place. That Jesus was actually not forsaken by his Father, that he somehow was just using metaphoric speech. He thought the Father had forsaken him, but in fact, he hadn't. Let me ask you this What happens when a sinner receives judgment? When a sinner who dies in his sins receives God's judgment, is God not forsaking that individual? This is exactly what Christ experienced. He experienced his father turning his back on him. And you know from Isaiah 53, it pleased God to crush him. It pleased God to turn his back on him. Why? Why? Because there was some sort of familial tiff going on? Of course not. There was and always will be perfect unity between the Father and the Son, but sin stood in the way in the moment that Christ bore the sins of the world. And by bearing that sin, it necessitated judgment. With that sin, he took the curse, he took the shame. He took the guilt, and he took the judgment. So my hope is that you would see that this is a substitutionary death. It's a death that you deserve. And I can say that to you with full love. And if I don't say it to you, I don't love you. It's a substitutionary death for me. I deserve that death. Every man, every woman deserves eternal torment and Christ in the moment that he bore the sins of those for whom he died he substituted he propitiated he satisfied the judgment the curse was lifted for those who will trust in him and so it's a substitutionary death and therefore those who trust in him Those who believe in him will, in fact, not experience that death. Why? Because their substitute experienced it for them. This really is the gospel. This really is the the message of the Bible. Part of it. It's a huge part of it. To understand that Christ bore our sins is a message that is so missing from so much pseudo-gospel preaching and teaching and counseling and evangelism. Can I just plead with you to never, ever, ever find yourself guilty of oversimplifying the gospel? At the same time, don't overcomplicate it. But tell people what the truth of the gospel is. Don't embrace some man made catchphrase that people can understand, therefore, it must work, therefore, it must be right. I'll never forget the first time I tried to share the gospel with a young man. I was in my early 20s, I was at a youth camp. Another counselor and I were with this 12-year-old boy who was crying and crying and crying and saying, my life is a mess, I've ruined everything, uh, what can I do? And I very nervously asked him to follow me in a sinner's prayer. And I deeply regret deceiving that young man. And this was the practice in the, in the circles in which I lived and, and ministered back then. There's no such thing as the sinner's prayer does not exist you say well i've seen it in print Yeah, somebody made it up my point is it's not in the bible the concept is not in the bible and i know you you may have thought at times that i might talk about this too much but i think there's no more important day than today to mention the fact that if you're going to help someone if you're really going to help someone eternally you must be willing to abandon over simplified unbiblical speech when it comes to helping someone be saved To tell someone you simply need to ask Jesus into your heart is utterly and completely unbiblical. The concept is not in the Bible. To ask them to make a decision for Jesus. Now listen, I know that there are people who use that terminology and it's not really what they mean. And I think we should give grace to those people. But I think you and I should be willing to say what the Bible actually says. I don't think it's incumbent upon you or me every time we hear someone use that kind of speech to correct them. But if you and I are going to be genuinely effective in the delivery of the gospel, if we're going to be true evangelists, and we're going to take people to the scripture and tell them what it says, Christ bore the sins of sinners. They need to know that they're sinners. They need to know that you're a sinner, that I'm a sinner. And that if Christ bore our sins, that looks like something. That results in change in a person's life. Not perfection, but it results in change. Point number two. Point number two, his sanctification of your life. He didn't just die a substitutionary death. He died a sanctifying death. So you need not only to understand this substitution for your death, but also this sanctification of your life. Verse 24 goes on to say, so that, or the so that's jumping out at you now. We've focused on this so much so that, so let's go back, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, should be on the edge of your seat, we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 to 15 say, for the love of Christ controls us. You hear that? It controls us. The love of Christ His love is so great, it controls the one for whom he died. controls the believer. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. What does all mean there? Does it mean all people everywhere? If it means all people everywhere in the phrase one died for all, It must certainly mean all people everywhere and the phrase therefore all died. And you know that's not true because not all die. Not in this manner. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see that? The person who is truly in Christ is controlled by the love of Christ because Christ's love was so great that he bore their sins. This is a difficult matter, I acknowledge, but it's humbling. It ought to humble us, it ought to humble you, it ought to to unify us, it ought to cause us to realize that God is great and we're not, and there are things that we don't fully comprehend, but they are clear. Christ controls one with his love for whom he died. Galatians 2, verses 19 to 20. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. See that? It's a reality that the person who dies to sin lives to Christ. Let me read it again from 1 Peter. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament, but here in a very succinct way. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, you know that Paul is not proclaiming sinlessness on his part. That would really be... uh, it would really be blasphemous. He would be claiming to be sinless as Christ is sinless. But he is saying that he lives unto Christ. He lives unto the righteousness of Christ. He lives unto God. Why? Because he loved me and gave himself up for me. Those whom Christ loved and gave himself up for will in fact live unto God. It's a certain reality. Peter H. Davids says the salvation in Christ is not just a freedom from the future judgment or from guilt. You see, that's the lordship salvation uh, matter. People will, will say, well, you know, I asked him into my heart, but I'm, you know, I don't really want to obey him. And I've got that insurance that protects me from eternal torment. I understand that part, but obeying him, I don't, you know, I don't know anything about that. David says it well. The salvation in Christ is not just a freedom from the future judgment or from guilt, but a freedom from the life of sin and a freedom to live as God intends. Now, let's talk about you and me for a minute. You love Christ, you love righteousness, you live unto righteousness, you love Him, you love people. But you know someone who claims to know Christ and they've got no victory over sin. That was you at one time, perhaps. And there is this declaration, oh, I love Jesus. And I'm convinced I'm going to heaven. How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, because, you know, I know Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and I've trusted him. But there's no victory over sin. In fact, there is a willful devotion to sin. There's a double life going on, and you know that. Now, what do you do with that person? Well, you, hopefully you have credibility with that person, you can tell them the truth. You can tell them the truth. There, there is no life in Christ without love for righteousness. It's, it's a lie. But because you've been in environments, and so have I, where it is so common that what it means to be a Christian is you ask Jesus into your heart, You've been in environments like that where that's, that's all it is. That's just that's what happens. You volitionally decide. You choose Jesus, even though Jesus says in John fifteen sixteen you didn't choose me. You think that you chose him, and then you have no hope. You've got no victory over sin. You know, you're bitter towards people who, who teach this kind of thing, and you get angry when you hear other people talking about it. And maybe, maybe that's because it is the offense of the gospel. And there is a point, there's a a turning point in any believer's life where this has been very, very offensive and suddenly it's soothing. Suddenly a person realizes what he accomplished was exactly enough. And so I will trust in him and what he did rather than my performance because obviously my performance is not that good and there are people who think that I'm going to die in my sins. See, that's the humble response of the believer But the person who rigidly says, no, you don't know me. How dare you accuse me of that? What are you talking about? How could you confront me? Who do you think you are? It's pretty sound confirmation that that person hasn't trusted Christ if he's rigidly defensive about any kind of accusation. How did Christ respond to accusations? And by the way, he was innocent with silence. He didn't defend himself. But the person who, who defensively defends himself may actually be proving that he's got no defense now the person whose defense is the gospel who says you know what thank you for expressing your concern i believe my hope is in christ's propitiatory work on the cross i believe that what he accomplished is exactly enough for me uh, and yet i still struggle with sin so help me with that you see that's the right response that's the response of the growing believer Who has in fact believed in this substitutionary death, and that's being proven in his increasingly sanctified life. See, I want you to see not only his substitutionary death, but I want you to see the resulting sanctification of your life. In Romans 6, no better passage, no better passage than Romans 6 to display this. What shall we say then? What's Paul talking about here? Well, in Romans 5, he has just pointed out the reality that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He's talking to believers. In other words, when you sin, you get more grace. You don't get more atonement. You don't get Christ re dying, but you get more grace because you need more grace. In all of your sin, you need grace. And so God grants full grace from eternity past to all those who trust him. And so that grace is exactly enough for you to repent for your sin and to move on, to persevere, to thank him for what he accomplished. Paul has just said where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. No. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You remember Peter's words, so that we might die to sin, right? Paul says it here very similarly. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? This is not water baptism. I think you know that. This is identification into Christ. It's not talking about being put in the water and brought back up out of the water. Not wrong to quote that passage when someone is baptized. It's probably a good thing to quote it because baptism displays that. Baptism symbolizes this, water baptism does. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? It's no longer I who live, it is Christ Jesus who lives in me. I died to what? To sin. I died to sin. Now, you know that when a person dies, he's inactive. That's the whole point. With regard to sin, he is inactive, he doesn't have a propensity to sin. It's not the nature of his life. He still struggles with the flesh. Every believer does. Paul confessed that he did. But Paul didn't just leave it there and say, you know, it's just, you know, it's just difficult. Life's just hard. He pointed to the fact that on the one hand, I with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with the flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. So the point is, are you spending time in the Word? Are you understanding the gospel more deeply and more richly? Paul goes on in Romans 6 verse 4 to say, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, death to sin, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is what it is to live to righteousness, to live in newness of life. It's a new life. It's a changed life. <laughs> I um, I studied with a guy after seminary for a while, went through the Grace Advance program with him, listened to his dad talk about the change that took place in his life, and it was a drastic, it was a drastic change. been to the Master's college, studied hard, did what he needed to do, but clearly rebellious, clearly disinterested, very ungrateful for the godly professors and, and all that took place there, and expressed that ingratitude, and just a few years later, the Lord saved him. The Lord saved him. Lo and behold, he's got a hunger for God's word. He actually reads God's word every day. Now he wants to study God's word. doesn't want to just bicker over God's word. He actually wants to be changed by God's word. It's really the way it happens. That's not abnormal. But because of the culture of Christendom today, we think it is. Oh, that's an unusual experience. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's normal Christianity. A person awakens unto God's kindness, having changed him. He loves God's word. He loves righteousness. He loves Christ. He loves people. He wants to see people grow to love Christ. Verse 5 in Romans 6, "...for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. He's talking about the ending of sinful tendencies, the change in a person's life. When Christ died, he died to sin once for all. It was one death, one time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ lives to God. Christ lives unto the righteousness of God even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. In other words, that word consider is to believe it to be true. Consider it a reality. Consider yourself, believe yourself to be dead to sin. In other words, cultivate that reality. This is true of the believer. So much confusion, so much false sense of security in so many people's lives because of some fleshly decision they've made. And the most unloving thing that you or I could do is to not help them recognize that a person who in fact loves Christ loves repentance. He loves to be challenged from the Word. He loves to engage in interaction with others that leads to greater conformity to the person of Christ. It's normal. It's the natural response of the believer who has been saved by the Christ who bore his sins Peter goes on to say, for by his wounds you were healed. I'll never forget the first time I heard this passage quoted. You may have heard it quoted, misquoted, misapplied. By his wounds, you were healed. Just believe it. Get over your cold tomorrow. All right? Got a broken arm? Be fixed in a couple weeks. He healed you physically with his wounds? No. Nothing in the text indicates that. This text in particular, in 1 Peter, is talking about spiritual healing. The whole point. Dealing with the reality that a person now has a love for righteousness. That's why it flows the way it does. So we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Why? Why does he say it that way? Well, again, just look at the, the obvious grammatical flow. By his wounds you were healed follows this reality that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why would you die to sin and live to righteousness? Because by his wounds you are healed. You are healed spiritually, so you are no longer dead to righteousness. You are dead to sin, now alive to righteousness. You love the things of the Lord. This comes from Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. It's a permanent healing that took place in the past. And if it took place in the past, why then do those who so often misquote it and misuse it find themselves unable to heal people in hospitals or wherever? term wounds here is welts, stripes, bruises, the result of being beaten with a fist or a whip, some tool of punishment. This would have been emotionally endearing to those readers who were in fact not only sojourners in a foreign land, but actual slaves under the ownership of brutal masters who would at least occasionally beat them mercilessly. Imagine reading this and having been subject to some unfair, severe, undeserved beating. Peter has already pointed out the need to be submissive to your masters with all respect. He says, not only those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin, you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. This is what he's talking about. That's what Peter was talking about. He was talking about the harsh treatment that slaves would receive. In some cases, severe beatings, which were undeserved. So Peter uses that terminology, gaining endearment from slaves who are owned by other people, telling them the wounds that Christ experience result in your spiritual healing. Wounds, by the way, which led to his death. Now in Matthew eight sixteen to 17, to be fair, I want to mention this passage. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Well you know that there was a time in Christian history where the sign gifts were exercised and practiced and there were those who were healed physically for the purpose of drawing attention to the Lord, drawing attention to the gospel. And that time ceased. And after that period of time, after that first century period where the sign gifts operated, they stopped. It's not to say that God doesn't heal people today because we believe He does. But the gift of healing is no longer exercised. Ultimately, you will not only be healed spiritually in all ways, and in a sense already are, but ultimately you will be healed physically of all things. Scripture records there will be no suffering in heaven. There will be no tears. You will be in a glorified State. So if you want to apply what took place in this passage in Matthew 8 here to the future, that's fine. But what about the reality that Paul suffered an eye disease? What about the reality that people still die? Do we say that they're faithless? No. We say that the spiritual healing that took place took place for certain. Physical healing will take place in the future. To live in the captivity of sinners... But to be liberated from sin is what this resulted in. To be under the dominion, under the imprisonment of unfair, unreasonable masters, but still being able to master one's own sin. That is the freedom of having been healed by the wounds of Christ. It is a healing of the wounds of one's own sin by the wounds of the sinless one. He knew no sin, yet he healed those who knew it well. He took it for them, healing them from its burdening power. He healed them spiritually. He healed them from the wounds of sin with his own physical wounds, which led to his substitutionary death. So I not only want you to see his substitutionary death for you, I not only want you to see his sanctification of your life, but point number three, I want you to see his shepherding of your soul. I want you to see him as the shepherd that cares for you. Verse 25 says, For you were continually straying like sheep. Again, from Isaiah 53, this time verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This point talking specifically to Israel. He's caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. In Ezekiel 34 verses 5 and 6, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. This is what the unbelieving sheep who one day will be found by the shepherd does. He wanders. He's scattered. He's got no direction. Really, he's got no hope. Jeremiah 50, verse 6. My people have become lost. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from the mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. The sheep... The sheep metaphor the Lord uses of his body is a rather effective one, isn't it? If you know anything about sheep, you know that they just don't have a lot going on upstairs. They're wayward. They tend to go in all different directions. They eat and keep moving as long as there's food in the direction of the food. And know nothing really about how to gain any kind of direction in their lives. Isaiah, as well as Peter, here points out that we were like those sheep. Those for whom Christ bore their sins were like those sheep. He says in verse 25, But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This term here for returned is an aorist passive verb. Passive meaning that it is a recipient of the action. So what a passive verb is. The subject is the recipient of the action of the verb. In other words, they have been returned. First Thessalonians 1 verses 9 to 10 help us with this, I think, in an analogous way. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come there is a turning a literal active turning from false gods unto the one true God how can a depraved person pull that off he can't unless his will is changed unless he's been given a new set of desires. Thus, Peter, using the passive form of the verb, now you have returned. Why would one turn to Christ? This verb literally means to change one's beliefs or even to cause to change beliefs. It is to turn back. Why would one do that if he's dead in his trespasses and sins, if he doesn't know any better? Well, Practically speaking, someone has shared the gospel with him. Someone has communicated the truth that Christ bore the sins of sinners. He died a substitutionary death. And the result of that substitutionary death is the righteousness of God being granted to that person. That person becomes the righteousness of God, and therefore the curse is lifted. The wrath of God no longer abides upon that person. Why would an unbeliever care? Because he's been given a new set of desires. And in the moment that he receives that new set of desires, he turns immediately to the one true shepherd. This term shepherd here is poimena. It's a term that I think you are probably very familiar with. We spend a lot of time talking about what a shepherd is, how a shepherd operates in a church. The fact that a shepherd is far more devoted to the safety of the sheep than it is their feel-good. He's willing to do that which is necessary for sheep that sometimes might not feel so good to them. Tells them the truth. He feeds them well. This term guardian here is episkopos, a term that's often translated as bishop or overseer, one who keeps watch. And so I titled this message this morning, Our Sin Bearer, Shepherd, and Soul Keeper the one who keeps watch over your soul. By the way, you keep him because he keeps you. He watches over your soul. He guards your soul. He, he feeds you as a shepherd. He cares for you as a shepherd, but he watches over you as an overseer, as one who truly, truly cares for you. This is not unusual to the Bible. In the Old Testament, God is seen as a shepherd in Genesis 48, verse 15, where on his deathbed, Jacob referred to God as the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Isaiah, in chapter 40, verse 11, says, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them to his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. In Jeremiah 31, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Ezekiel 37, verse 24, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And of course, you're well familiar with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. What a beautiful picture. And then David going on to speak of the green grass that one would lay down in just as a sheep would lay down when he's fed well, he's cared for, he's been nurtured, he's been protected. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This really ought to be the mindset of the believer who comes to this conclusion that Christ is a shepherd who shepherds his soul. He not only died a substitutionary death for you, he not only sanctifies your life, giving you a love for righteousness and things that honor Christ, but he also shepherds your soul. He cares for you. He provides what you need. Peter says it in his second letter when he's in prison, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of him. This is why we're not an entertainment-based church. This is why we don't want to tickle your ears with a message that makes you feel better about you. We want you to feel better because you feel better about Christ who's going to help you experience the joy that comes with recognizing that a life of suffering necessitates a shepherd who will really care for you. You need to hear truth about your soul. I need to hear truth about my soul. And I need to know that there is a shepherd who will care for me when I come to an awareness of that truth, because it's painful. It's painful to look in the spiritual mirror of the Bible and recognize that we are not all that we think we are. We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We tend to think more critically of others than we do self. We tend to think that we've got everything theological all wrapped up, and I'm listening to what I'm listening to through the grid of what I already know to be true. Think very highly of ourselves. Rather than being willing to be taught, rather than being willing to be scathed, to be changed by the power of the word of God, the shepherd who has given you his word, which at times is offensive to the believing soul is the shepherd who cares for you. The things from which he prohibits you are things that he prohibits you from because he loves you. The commands in the Bible that would prohibit you from certain conduct and certain thought attitudes, hard attitudes, are things that he has prohibited you from because he is a shepherd who cares for sheep. In 1 Peter 5, there is a call upon those who would shepherd the flock. And that call is very clear. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. You know this. This is why we have family groups. This is why we have discipleship. Because the command of the shepherd from the chief shepherd is to shepherd the flock of God among you, that the church would see these things as a priority. It's not an option. Discipleship is not. An option. It's a matter of being cared for. It's not unusual that those who won't participate in receiving the care of the shepherd eventually turn on the shepherd. That's true on a, on a divine basis. It's true on an earthly basis. Those who refuse to experience the care of the shepherd, Jesus Christ, ultimately turn on Jesus Christ. We see this on a practical level on the earth. But the command here again is to clearly to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. In other words, don't do what you do because you have to do it. Do it because you want to do it voluntarily, according to the will of God. According to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Why? 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 Why is it vital that those who call themselves pastors, those who shepherd the flock, those who are involved in the leadership of the church, why is it crucial that they disciple and they call people to discipleship and they call people to relationships? Because this is the natural reality of the Scripture. The person who wants to do it his own way but refuses discipleship, he refuses relationships, he refuses honesty. He refuses to confess his sin. He refuses to be involved in calling other people to confession of sin. But he wants some sort of attachment to the church, and who knows why? Heaven only knows. But he doesn't want discipleship. He doesn't want shepherding. He doesn't want what Christ says is the nuts and bolts of the Christian faith. He doesn't want to be shepherded. What does he want? Who knows? Who knows? But I know this. I know this. I know that we stand apart as a local church. Known by our discipleship. And we always will be. As long as we'll be faithful to Christ, there will be people in our church who will insist on being discipled. They will insist on being cared for by shepherds. They will demand it because that's what faithful shepherds do. Why? First Peter 5, verse 4. Here's why. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is eternal life. It's a reality that the person who is called to shepherd the flock is called to represent the ultimate shepherd, the chief shepherd. So it is a great joy for me to be involved in a faithful local church who understands this. So when we call someone to involvement in the church, we're not calling them to come sit here on Sunday mornings and listen to me talk. That's not the deal. We're calling them to subject themselves to the chief shepherd who demands, commands, calls us to the shepherding process that involves relationships with people. William Barclay, I think, is helpful to us in this regard. And he actually quotes from the historical geography of the Holy Land by Sir George Adam Smith. He describes the shepherd of Judea. He says, With us, sheep are often left to themselves, but I do not remember ever to have seen in the east a flock of sheep "'without a shepherd, in such a landscape as Judea, "'where a day's pasture is thinly scattered "'over an unfenced tract of country, "'covered with delusive paths still frequented "'by wild beasts and rolling off into the desert, "'the man and his character are indispensable. "'On some high moor, across which at night "'the hyenas howl, when you meet him, "'sleepless, farsighted, weather-beaten, "'armed, leaning upon his staff, And looking out over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart, you understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front of his people's history, why they gave his name to their king and made him the symbol of providence, why Christ took him as the type of self-sacrifice." Barclay goes on himself to say, the word shepherd tells us most vividly of the ceaseless vigilance and the self-sacrificing love of God for us who are his flock. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I hope that you are moved by the reality that Christ bore your sins if you've trusted him. If you've not trusted him, then trust him. Call Upon the name of the Lord, that his substitutionary death would apply to you. Stop resting in some decision you made. Stop resting in a volitional act on your heart, on your part something that you look back to. I'll never forget reading a discipleship book years ago. We were trying to train young people what it means to love the Lord. Someone gave this illustration of a farmer who had questioned his salvation. He went to the preacher and the preacher said, next time Satan causes you to question your salvation, I want you to go outside your kitchen window and drive a stake where you can see it on your land. Drive it deep, make it a big one so you can see it from that window. And when Satan tempts you, I want you to remind Satan that you knelt down by that stake and you asked Jesus into your heart. What a load of baloney. Sounds very effective. Sounds very noble. It's not helpful. It's a deception. If you question your salvation, and by the way, you should, but if you question it, you need to look to the gospel. You need to look to the sin bearer, the one who bore the sins of many. And if you're struggling with, well, How many was it, and am I included? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. You can think through all that later. You can sort through all that later, and I think you should. But for now, if you're questioning whether or not you're one of the many, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, did he bear the sins of many? And the answer is, yes, he did. Be the one who trusts him, and you will know that you are among those whose sins he bore. And believe that he will produce in you sanctification. If he died for you, you will die to sin. And you will live to righteousness. How do you know you're a Christian? Because you've died to sin and you live to righteousness. But also know that he shepherds the souls of those for whom he died. But he didn't just die. He did not just die after his death from Matthew 28 we read the angel said to the women do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified he is not here for he is risen he is risen that substitutionary death that he died that was necessary for propitiation it was necessary for a substitution for those who would trust him that they would not experience the death that he experienced the death that they deserved he then conquered that death and we are told in 1 Corinthians 15 that without the hope of the resurrection our faith is worthless Don't ever think that the gospel is only the obedient life of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ. You must have a new life-giving resurrection. If you are in his death, if you have been baptized into his death, you have been baptized into his resurrection, and you have new life. And the proof of that is your hatred for sin, you have died to sin, and you live to righteousness. Father, we give you great thanks that the words of our our brother Peter the Apostle in chapter 5 I've written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it. Lord, we thank you for that grace to which you have called us. The grace in which we are to stand firm. Lord, our hearts are are wayward. They are prone to wander. They are prone to think selfish thoughts, to take credit for what Christ did. May we think of any willingness on our part to take a sliver of credit for what Christ accomplished in the propitiation of our sins as adding a thimble of water to the ocean. It just... Isn't necessary. And really, it's an insult. Lord, may we rest in what Christ accomplished and that it was fully accomplished. And may it be that we would examine our lives. And if for any one of us that we would find ourselves having not died to sin, but still living in it that we would acknowledge that to be a clear indication of a lack of hope in Christ. Lord, may it be that we will be a church devoted to grace, not arm-twisting, not manipulation, not an effort to persuade people in the flesh, but an effort to pray, an effort to understand the gospel, an effort to live in light of the gospel, to have a life that is truly, impacted by the power of Christ's substitutionary death that is proven in his sanctifying work in our lives and that is a great joy because of his shepherding of our souls. We ask this all in his name. Amen.